Her message will be a little bit longer than the children's sermon. But I think it will be just as effective. There's two things in our culture that have the great potential to take normal, peaceful, happy, joy-filled people and turn them into a rage monster. Do you, know, do you want to know what those two things are? Mentioning religion and politics. Right? You want to see somebody's face get red, their ears get on fire. I mean, all you got to do is say religion and politics, and you got an argument on your hands. Amen? All right, I'm going to talk about both of those today. We're going to cover both of those in this message. You know, speaking on politics, y'all get nervous? Some of our leaders in the church are probably nervous right now. Speaking of politics, <clears throat> I wanted to describe to you this morning as an introduction to my sermon, the top five things, the top five things that I love, not really, about seasons such as this one when we prepare to vote for our future leaders. The top five things that I love, not really, about the things that go on during a season like this one. Number one, I am so thankful when I receive robocalls at dinner or important meetings from our politicians. I don't love that at all. And some of you probably will get a call right now during this message, so I hope you silence your phone. Number two, I absolutely love it, not really, when people I don't know confront me out in public about my political views. When they ask me a question and then proceed to talk at me, not with me, but at me for 20 minutes that I don't have in a schedule when I just wanted to go to the store and grab something and go back home. Number two, that was number two. Number three, it's so encouraging, not really, to hear such well-informed commercials about the candidates, which are always done in a, pers uh, a professional way, that respects others as human beings made in the image of God. I especially appreciate, not really, their partisan presentation of views, their nonpartisan presentation of views, and view them as a treasure trove of valuable information. Number four. I am overwhelmed, not really, by the personal letters that I receive from our politicians. They write my name in cursive. That's how I know that they gave that letter, especially to me. And they sign it in cursive. That's how I know that they wrote it. That's how I know that they took time to reach out to me personally and secure my vote. Number five and last... I don't really care who wins elections because every candidate loves me and will provide the very best possible future for all of us, according to their commercials and their letters and their phone calls. They know every one of us personally, which is reflected by the personal letters and the phone calls, and they know exactly what we need from them. It's amazing. Based on their letters and phone calls, the online ads and social media, we really can't go wrong. Whoever's voted into office will provide the very best possible society for you and me. Well, it's easy to get up and get caught up in politics during a season like this one. 
while I think it's important for all of us to exercise our right to vote and to do our very best to put godly, biblical people into office, there is one question that we need to answer in the midst of a season like this one. How do I live like Jesus in the midst of the political dumpster fire? How does God want me to live in the midst of a season like this one? where much of our attention is put into political movements. And I've got three ways to do that. If you'll take your Bible and open it up to Titus chapter 3. That's where I'll be preaching from today. Titus chapter 3. Three ways to live like Jesus in the midst of the political dumpster fire. Number one, remember who you are and what you were. Remember who you are and what you were. Paul wrote a letter to a missionary named Titus, who helped Paul on his missionary journeys around the Middle East. Paul then left Titus, this missionary pastor, in a place called Crete. And Paul writes this letter named Titus in the New Testament, uh, Titus, because it's a letter to him. And in this letter, he Uh, instructs Titus to help the churches appoint pastors that had newly formed. uh, Churches had newly formed, and they wanted him to appoint pastors for them. And he gave him some teaching about how to live a godly life in pop culture. And so I think this is appropriate for you and I. And so let's look at the text. The first thing we need to do to live like Jesus in this culture is to remember who you are and what you were. Look at Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hating, hating one another. It's first important for us to remember our identity in Christ. The Bible is pretty clear about who we are and to whom we belong. I mean, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, and behold, the new things have come. 1 Peter 2, 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And finally, Ephesians 2.10, just in case you haven't figured out who you belong to, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God before, uh, prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Therefore, we find our identity in Jesus. That means that Jesus defines who we are, how we are to live, how we are to think. 
He's the one who molds us and shapes us. In the midst of this political dumpster fire, we must remember who we are. Followers of Jesus Christ first and foremost. And that means we do our best to imitate him and obey his commands. Well, what does he command in this passage? Look at verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. You know, the Bible teaches us that God is the one who places rulers and authorities in their positions. And now we're, we learn here in this particular passage that we are to obey our rulers and authorities. Now, the Bible further, further teaches us that we do that to the extent that it's not contrary to what the Bible teaches us to do and to live and to think. So to the degree that they mimic or resemble what the Bible tells us to do and how to live, we are to obey the law and the rulers that God has put above us. But our role in society is not to be just passive in nature. We must be ready to do good works. We shouldn't blend into the background and refuse to get involved in our culture. Instead, we're to be agents of good in our culture. Jesus said it best in Matthew 5.16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Verse 2 of our passage gives examples of good works. To malign no one, to be peaceable gentle, showing every consideration for all men. We must, first and foremost, remember that every person is made in the image of God. Even the people you most vehemently disagree with politically are made in the image of God. And God desires above all things for all people to turn from sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This reality must saturate our attitudes and our actions. Remember, it wasn't too long ago that you and I were ignorant of the gospel. Do you remember that time? Do you remember when you were lost and hopeless and helpless? Do you remember being lost in your sin, unwilling to live in obedience to the Lord? I remember the first 20 years of my life, living for myself. And then I remember the day that I was saved. Anybody else remember that day? Paul's going to take us down memory lane and remind us about what we were before we were Christians. Look at verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. You know, Lee writes, humankind's innate sinful nature and the intensity with which it can manifest itself determines the degradation of all human society. Things are the way they are because of us. 
because of our sin and separation from God, because before Christ, and instead of choosing what's good and right and biblical, instead we choose to do what we want to do. And when we live the way we want to live, when we do the things we want to do, that leads us off of, every time, the path of God's righteousness. But thank the Lord we've been born again. Thank the Lord we've been saved. We've seen that path of righteousness, and now we walk upon it. But it wasn't too long ago that you and I were lost and headed for hell. We foolishly chased after the riches that this world has to offer. We embraced the lies that our enemy, Satan, embedded into it. We disobeyed our God. We deceived ourselves and others. We surrounded ourselves with pleasure and surrendered our hearts to the lust leading to it and ultimately became slaves to both of them. None of us, or none of this brought us joy. None of that brought us happiness. And so we were angry at those who had what we didn't have. We were once a part of the problem, but God showed us grace by saving us through Jesus. Now, Paul reminds us, this word reminds us, to show the same grace toward other people. Other people who have been made in the image of God. Other people who are lost like you were lost. Other people who don't have the hope that now resides in your heart. They don't have the future that God promised to you. And so we remember who we were. And that helps us to remember and celebrate, number two, what God has done in your life. Has God done a work in your life? Anybody? Has God done something amazing in your life? What Paul does next in this letter, as he try to answer the question, how do I live like Jesus in a political dumpster fire? How do I live like someone set apart? How do I live as a light in this dark place? How do I live for Christ in this culture? The second thing he reminds us to do in verses 4 through 7 is to remember what God did in your life because God did something amazing in your life. Amen? What has God done in your life? Look at the text, beginning in verse 4. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared. So I'm going to take each of these just step by step. We're going to step back and look theologically at what God has done in our life through Christ. First of all, what he says in verse 4 is that God became a man and dwelt among us. We, humanity, was lost in our sin. As a result of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, sin perpetuated itself and, and exponentially increased on this planet. And we lived separated from our Creator and from the joy that He desired and designed us to experience. And God saw us in our sin, in our hopelessness. And John 3.16 said that God expressed or demonstrated His love for us. He sent Jesus, God in the flesh. God became man and dwelt among us. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled God's law. And he gave his life as a sacrifice on the cross for your sin and for mine. 
And while he was on that cross, he received the wrath of God on your behalf. He received your punishment and my punishment. His blood was shed on that cross as a covering, or the Bible says an atonement, a sacrificial offering for your sin and mine. And that Jesus died on that cross. And he was buried in the ground. And on the third day, hallelujah, he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. All that's wrapped up in verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, the appearing of Jesus is God's demonstration of love and the beginning of that process of salvation that's now offered to all of us. It continues, verse 5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. The fact of the matter is, is we are saved by grace through faith. But saved from what? We, we throw that term around all the time. Saved from what? Saved from receiving God's wrath for our sin. Jesus saved us from that. We don't earn our salvation. We can't earn it. No amount of good works will ever make you right with God. God made you right with God by sending Jesus for you. And so, therefore, we're not saved by our works. We're saved by Jesus' work on the cross. And the calling upon our lives is to receive that by faith. And I pray that you've done that. So God became man. He dwelt among us. We are saved not by works, but by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. Let's go on. Verse 5. You want to hear some more? By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The third person of the Trinity, named in the Bible the Holy Spirit, also named the Helper. He comes and works on God's behalf on this earth and, and through your heart. He's the one, when you heard the gospel, who drew you to faith in Christ. He's also the one who makes you to be born again. You know, Jesus said uh, that we have to be born again to receive the kingdom of God. Well, and then we learn we can't make ourselves born again. Nicodemus said that. How can I get back inside my mother? I can't be born a second time. Jesus said, you're not, you're not getting it. You don't understand. This is a spiritual movement of God. And folks, that's not something you can do on your own. That's something that God does for you through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit catalyzes our faith in Jesus when we hear the gospel. He's the one that works inside of your heart. He's the one who drew you to Christ. And then after that, he's the one who made you to be born again, turned into a new person. Regenerated is the fancy theological term for that. And then that same Holy Spirit, by God's grace, indwells you. He doesn't go away. He stays inside of you. By the way, he brings with him spiritual gifts for you to use in, uh, to give God glory for the building up of his church. This is what Paul writes right here. That's the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, he poured out upon us richly. That means in abundance. You, just get like a, you didn't just get like a tiny portion of the Holy Spirit. You got the Holy Spirit, believer, inside of you doing a great work. And he will see that great work done inside of you until the end, until one day Jesus returns and we all go back to be with him in heaven. The Holy Spirit will see that through to the end. You can trust him and you can have faith that God will do that because he's blessed you richly through the indwelling Holy Spirit. If that weren't enough, 
right? It continues, verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to that hope of eternal life. So after that moment of being born again, we're now justified in the eyes of God the Father. That means God sees us and, and there's no longer uh, a claim of, of God's wrath upon us. We're, we're made right with him. Just like you justify, a, uh, if you're an accountant, you justify your book, right? Or justify your, check, your checkbook. That's balanced through Christ. Our relationship in the eyes of the Father is justified. We're, we're made righteous with him. We're forgiven by him. And that's not it. You want more? We're made righteous. That means we can go into the presence of the Father because we're covered by the blood of the Lamb. And so when you die, now you go to heaven and, and you're in the presence of God forever because you've been made righteous because the righteousness of Christ, check this out, has been imputed upon you. That means when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus, the perfection of Jesus. It doesn't mean you're a perfect person here. But spiritually, the Father sees the righteousness of Christ when he looks upon you. And that causes you by his grace, to be adopted into his family. That's why Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send my spirit. He said this in the book of John. And he's going he's to help you on your way. I'm going to go up to heaven. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And the Holy Spirit escorts us up to be with the Father. So we're made righteous. We're justified. We're adopted into God's family. And if that weren't enough, we inherit. We have a great inheritance in heaven based on the way that we follow Jesus here on earth. Every born-again believer, first and foremost, by God's grace and mercy, is given an eternity in heaven with God. And on top of that, like this double blessing, now the way that we use the time that we have, that gives us an exponential inheritance in heaven based on how you follow Jesus and what he's called you to do here on earth. So it's like this amazing, infinite, double blessing that God has waiting for us in heaven. It's pretty awesome. Those are all the things that God did in your life through saving you in Jesus Christ. So we need to remember what God's done in our lives. We are born again. We are justified, adopted, Holy Spirit-filled followers of Jesus, and this world is not our home. Where's our citizenship? It's in heaven. And so listen, folks, we need to, we need to watch less Fox News and less CNN. We need to read our Bibles more. We need to gather for worship more. We need to be praying more. We live for something and someone Bigger than ourselves. And we need to dedicate our lives to that eternal mission. It reminds me of when I played football in high school. Any sports players, anybody play sports in high school? You know, it was, playing sports was awesome, and then one of the things I really loved about it was just being part of something, right? Being part of a team. Or if you serve in the military, you understand that to a much higher level. And I remember 
we would go to practice and we would do two days in the summer and really sweat and there was blood, sweat, and tears, man. It was, it was not enjoyable, but we did that because we wanted to win football games. And then school would start in the fall, and the coach would bring us all together and be like, all right, here's the deal. You guys came together. You're a team now. You're a part of something bigger than yourselves. School is going to start next week, and you're going to go, and all the rest of the students are going to come back, and there's going to be opportunities for you to, to direct your eyes or lose focus from our mission, which is to win football games. And so the kids would come back and things would happen that would draw us away from what, what we were supposed to be doing, right? There would be fights, right? Fights in the hallway, opportunities for you to get involved with. Kids, you know, got involved with drinking and drugs and, and bad lifestyle choices, all that kind of stuff. All that kind of started and then magnified when we all went back to school. And the coach would remind us, keep your eyes on the mission, right? No one gets expelled. No one gets suspended. We all need to stick together and we need to stay on this mission. Likewise, and to a, greater to a greater degree and of much more importance, as born-again believers, we need to remember that we are also on a mission. Remember why you're here. Every year in the summer, we do a mission trip. And I think the only time we, we didn't do one was maybe in 2020 during COVID. I, can't, I don't think we did one that year. But we're back to doing them now. But we had a long history of doing mission trips. And so we got all kinds of stories. Um, I've only been here five years. We've done, you know, I've been on three or four. Um, and then, of course, the mission teams, many of y'all that have been on mission trips, you know, for decades. And I've got all kinds of stories. We, we've got stories about broken down campers, you know, life-threatening events happening on the highway as everyone tried to drive. We've got, I've got a story, Miss Mim could tell you about people sleeping uh, in a church that had no roof and, and they went to do a VBS and they slept out, basically out in the open. We served at a church that had no AC in the middle of summer in Florida. That was pretty awesome. We've intervened and been a part of serving troubled churches with troubled staffs. We've served and had VBSs with some of the most difficult children that you can imagine. But you know what? You know what we focus on when we go on those mission trips? The mission, right? We're here on mission for Jesus, and, and we bring everybody together. We say whether or not we got air conditioning or a roof over our head, whether we have enough food, whether half the team comes down with the flu, which has happened before, all of that does not deter us from the mission. Church, we are on mission all the time as believers. That's why we're here. That's why when you, when you turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, that's why he didn't just take you up to be with him in heaven, which, by the way, would have been awesome, right? But if all the believers went away, who would be here left to tell the story of Jesus, right? Because we'd all be gone. So Jesus left us here to be missionaries, to be ambassadors for him, to proclaim the gospel. We are here because we are on mission Paul reminds us in verses 8 through 11 why we're here. Look at the text, and then I'll be done. He says, This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable to men. First, like Titus, in a way like Titus, those who hold leadership positions in the church should speak boldly of everything he just covered in verses 4 through 7, which is the gospel. We should be bold 
in telling people about Jesus and, and explaining the gospel, especially in this church. So proclaiming the gospel and teaching the word, that's not just for the lost to hear. That's to encourage us. And he says there that this is trustworthy and we should do it boldly. Let me just tell you today, can I just tell you something? Stop being afraid. Stop being afraid to share the gospel and to proclaim the truth of the word of God. Do you know what the enemy wants? He wants you to shut your mouth. He doesn't really care if we gather in this place quietly and then leave this place quietly and live our lives quietly. And that's exactly what the pop culture teaches and supports right now. You believe what you want to be, believe, but you don't dare go out in the public square and tell people about Jesus. The enemy Satan wants us to shut our mouths. Why? He doesn't want people to be saved. He doesn't want people to be brought from the darkness and into the marvelous light. And guess, guess how someone goes from being caught up in sin and darkness and hopelessness and, and lost and the things that this world has to offer, which offer no eternal benefit. When people are lost in that, how do they get from there over to this amazing, joy-filled, marvelous light that you and I enjoy? How do they get from there to here? It's you. Someone has to tell them that there's something else, that there's something better. And God has appointed you as the ambassador. You're the one he puts in the dark place to take them by the hand and to show them a better way. And the enemy Satan would like nothing better than for us to be silenced and afraid, scared to tell people about Jesus because he doesn't want people to leave the darkness and go to the marvelous light. And so here's some ways for us to move forward and not to not be distracted, especially in this season when politics tend to kind of get in the forefront. Look at verse 9. He says, Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they, they are unprofitable and worthless. So here's what he's talking about. Paul would move from place to place as a missionary, and he would share the gospel among the people there. And then, as we read through the book of Acts, we see that people were being saved. They would hear about Jesus. There's a group of them that would turn from their sin, place their faith in Jesus, and then a church would be started. Generally, then Paul would leave, and he would go to a new place as a missionary and do the same thing. Now, what the enemy Satan did was he sent these people who became known as Judaizers to go in behind Paul and to sow discord and uh, confusion and false teaching. And so these, these men would come in behind Paul and they would say, you know, we believe in Jesus and, and we're believing what Paul taught, but there's actually more, there's a little bit more that you need to know if you really want to be right with God. So they would teach them, men, you need to be circumcised. If you're not circumcised, you're not going to be right with God. And then also, you need to follow through with obeying every part of the law, meaning the Old Testament law that, that God gave to the Israelites. And so they came in after Paul, and they said, you know, to really be saved, you got to do these things as well. And so Paul spent a good chunk of his letters to the New Testament churches reminding them, 
you were saved by grace through faith in Jesus, and it's not by your works. When you see that, which Paul writes often, generally that's why he's writing that. Because there were people sharing false teaching that you had to do these works in order to actually be saved by Jesus. And so he says here, uh, you need to avoid these controversies. And you need to keep your eyes focused on Jesus. The, 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 the folks that would come in would also try to engage these believers in, in these fruitless debates about genealogies. Because they, they taught that really to be right with God, you really need to be trace your, your family lineage back to uh, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, for example. Or it really depends on who your family is. And, and that's where you'll have your standing within the church. And so they kind of came in. and, and so, so Paul started the church and gave the people hope and, and excitement and direction and, and help them to follow Jesus. And then these other false teachers came in and then they kind of like stirred the pot and, and like kind of inserted some unbiblical ingredients into the life of the church. So Paul's writing this letter to remind them and us not to get engaged in these kinds of fruitless debates. While we may not argue about our genealogy, there's a tremendous temptation in this political season to allow our differences of opinion to fracture the unity of our church. We must unify around the gospel. Because that's what brought all of us together, right? The gospel. That's why we're here. That's our mission. Now, there's going to be people in the church who don't want to do that who refuse to be unified around the gospel. And Paul tells us in verse 10 and 11 what to do with them. He says, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. And so these false teachers, they, they would come into the church and they would cause all kinds of problems. So Paul instructed Titus and the future pastors of those churches to give them one warning, to give them a second warning, and then they're to be put out of the church. Why is it so important to do that, I wonder? Well, when false teachers come into the church and spread discord, that causes disunity. And when a church becomes disunitized, they stop working together. They stop trusting one another. They stop loving one another and the body no longer functions the way that Jesus designed us to function. I've seen lots of churches like this in my history when I consult with them. What that does every single time, it leads them away from the mission of God. It leads them away from the fruitful proclamation of the gospel. I can tell you the, the enemy would like nothing more than for us to continue to just gather in this place to fight and to not get any work done. That's his idea of a good New Testament church right there. That's not what we're called to do. And that's not what we do as a church. But we need to pay heed to this text to remember that in the midst of this political season, to stay on mission and to remain unified in the gospel. Let me close with this. How do we live for Jesus in a, little, in a political dumpster fire. How does God want you to live in the midst of this season that we're in today? First, remember who you are. 
Remember your identity in Christ. And remember where you came from. Second, remember what God did in your life. He's the one that took you out of the dark place and into the marvelous life. And then third, remember why you're here. We are here for one purpose, and that's to be on mission for our King. And that's our job. So we're going to have a time of invitation now. And this is an opportunity for us to respond to whatever God has done in your life. Maybe this week, this month. Maybe you don't even know why you're here today. Maybe a friend brought you or you just kind of stumbled in and we're glad you're here. But maybe as this message was preached, God moved in a unique way in your life. Maybe you need to join this church or you need prayer or or just need to, to share a burden with the Lord and you want to come up and pray at the altar, all of that's fine. So in a second, we're all going to stand up and we're going to sing a song together. And this will be your opportunity to respond to whatever the Lord has laid upon your heart. So would you all stand with me? Heavenly Father, we love you. And we're so thankful to you for saving us. We're thankful that you unify us through the ministry of your indwelling Holy Spirit, that every born-again believer has the same spirit inside of them. No matter who we are, where we're from, who our parents were, what language we speak, what kind of political opinions we have, we are unified through your indwelling spirit. We have been bought by your blood, and we have been gathered in this place to worship you so now during this time, this moment of decision, help us to take a step of faith and to come forward to pray, to join, maybe to surrender a part of our life that's taken us off mission to you. Whatever that is, Lord, help us to do that well in these next few moments. In Jesus' name.